From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we begin the work of making sense out of what happened last week. Coming up, Joan Walsh says the election makes a lot of us feel like everything we thought we knew about politics was wrong. Kai Wright talks about the people he's been following for the last two months, Trump supporters on Long Island, and people who fear Trump. And Adam Schatz goes over competing explanations of our new nightmarish political reality. First up, Mike Davis says the real revolution in American politics this year was not Trump's. Mike is a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. He's best known for his book about L.A., City of Quartz. He's written a dozen other books on all kinds of topics, and he publishes all over the place. We reached him today at home in San Diego. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Well, a lot of our friends woke up the day after the election feeling like they were living in a country they didn't know. Was that your feeling? You know, initially, of course, you know, we all felt that the sky fell in on us. But if you look at the election results, there's a lot less there than we might have assumed or or worried about. I mean, the great surprise of the election, at least from looking at the, you know, the final results on a county by county or state by state level, it's not that it was a dramatic white working class shift to Trump, but rather it was his success in retaining the loyalty of Romney voters. And as many people may know, uh, his final vote, uh, most places, was about the same as Romney's, and the national total was about the same. And the key factor here was not so much the economic populism, but the cynical covenant that he made with religious conservatives after their hero, Cruz, was defeated in the primaries. So the Christian right was given a free hand to draft the party program at the platform at the convention, something of a dream platform. And then he chose one of their great popular heroes, Pence of Indiana, is his running mate. And if you read the religious right websites or statements by the key people, they make it clear that this was, this was really seen as the last stand for right to life, especially the control of the Supreme Court and a final opportunity to reverse uh, Roe versus Wade. And this may explain some of the more counterfactual results of the election. For instance, that Clinton underperformed Obama by eight points amongst uh, Latino Catholics, for example. I know you've been lecturing uh, at a Catholic university in San Diego. What what were the kids there thinking about about Trump? Well, I kept meeting people who were alarmed, even terrified by his immigration policy, by the, the, the deportations. But they actually believed that Clinton, who, unlike Obama, ended up being vividly identified with late-term abortions, they could not stomach uh, her policies on abortion. They were, you know, they were very torn. It was unclear to me which they would choose. I mean, this is not to say that there weren't a lot of, for instance, Latinos uh, who may have voted for Trump because of the cargo cult he built around reindustrialization, you know, in jobs. But I think the mainstream media has been mistaken to underemphasize the role of the platform of Pence and of the right to life agenda in the election. 
I love that line of yours about the cargo cult of jobs uh, in the Trump campaign. Jobs falling from the sky in answer to the prayers of the believers uh, on the island. Uh, How long do you think it will take Trump voters to see that Trump is not going to bring back those good manufacturing jobs? Well, there are, of course, explosive contradictions in Trump's platform, and it's difficult to see how the so-called movement conservatives or institutional Republicans are going to vote for the kind of deficit spending that would be required for a big infrastructure program or jobs program at the same time while dramatically slashing taxes for uh, the upper the upper tax brackets. From the data I've seen, the defection of white working class Obama voters to Trump was mainly a decisive factor in, in a lakeshore room of counties along the southern shore of, of Lake Erie, southeasternmost county in Michigan, in Ohio, and in Erie, Pennsylvania. And this is an area that's experiencing right now, as people have read from various accounts in the paper, a new wave of job flight to Mexico or, or the American South. But in other places, other parts of the Rust Belt, whether we're talking about the Piedmont textile and furniture towns of the uh, Carolinas or the Anthracite Valley areas of Pennsylvania, the defections from the Democrats, of course, took place uh, a while ago, even a long time ago, going back to two, 2000 election. And I think the media, to some extent, has conflated these two phenomena, that is the defection of Obama blue-collar voters with the vote of blue-collar whites who'd already endorsed Republicans. I mean, the most dramatic example of that, of course, is West Virginia, you know, the most famously blue state, which has now turned almost entirely red, not only in the presidential election, where it, only Wyoming exceeded it in the percentage of votes given to, to Trump, but now in local elections as well, a state in which the Democrats for the last 25 years have had absolutely nothing to offer in terms of saving traditional steel, chemical, and coal industries, providing jobs programs, an area that's just been scourged by, you know, addiction, unemployment, where the social agenda of the churches rates high, and without a compelling economic program, uh, you just had a massive shift, equally in other parts of Appalachia. Uh, Let's talk about Hillary and women for a minute. Hillary Clinton was expected to win white college-educated Republican suburban women. We heard a lot about them this time. What happened? Well, she did make uh, some modest gains in some of the Republican suburbs that were the principal target of her campaign in key states. But it looks like what happened is that a crucial cohort of college-educated Republican women who'd been wavering in the previous polling or indicating that they would vote for Clinton, rallied back to Trump in the last week. And of course, you can attribute this to different factors, Comey's surprise intervention and renewed skepticism about her honesty. But I think it was also the fact that Republican women's disgust at, you know, of Trump was counterbalanced by, by Bill Clinton and Anthony Weiner. So, you know, this reduced, I think, some of the, the effect of uh, Trump being a boastful uh, a rapist. I mean, it was still a surprising result. Trump uh, had famously the highest unfavorability ratings of any candidate in history. 
but it seems like a lot of the people, or at least some of the people who viewed him unfavorably, nevertheless voted for him. What do you make of that? Well, the Edison exit polls show that about a fifth of his voters, and that's about 12 million people, reported an unfavorable attitude toward him, but voted nonetheless. So how this breaks down, I mean, many of these might have been religious conservatives uh, who had supported Cruz, but were voting, in fact, for the platform and for Pence, not for Trump. But also, I think, includes, I think there were a lot of people who just, you know, wanted to see what was inside a Pandora's box. They pushed the red button, you know, in protests against Washington and elites. I think some people literally voted for chaos out of desperation or because they saw no other way to lodge a protest. So do you see that the Trump victory bringing to life a a new political alignment that will persist, that will reshape America? Will there be something you might call Trumpism that will be big and lasting, like, I don't know, the Reagan revolution or even the New Deal coalition? No, I think it's, it's actually almost structurally impossible. But I say that, well, at the same time, believing that Trump's policies are nowhere as near as improvised or incoherent as they're often made out to be. To uh, an uncanny extent, he embraced the politics that Pat Buchanan uh, has argued for for almost 40 years, in which Breitbart has become uh, the megaphone for uh, policies as close to an American fascism as he'll ever get. But the insuperable obstacles to this are that none of the institutional Republicans in Washington are going to go along with the economic nationalism part at, at, at the end of the day. It cuts directly, of course, against the interests of their corporate sponsors. His choices for the cabinet are so egregious and some of his policies so egregious that what you're going to see, I think, is you know a rolling sequence of, of protests and the movement that stands best position to, to harvest that. And I think in the long run, and maybe I'm being over-optimistic, it's been the true winner of the election, is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, the uh, Warren Sanders wing, uh, which actually is one foot in the Democratic Party and one foot out. You think the real revolution in American politics this year was not Trump's? No, I don't think so at all. And I think the, the emergent phenomena that's most important has been the dramatic downward mobility of college graduates, including the children of new immigrants and working class families. That's the new economic distress that has found a political expression through the Sanders campaign. And there's simply no way that Trumpism is going to unite that kind of economic discontent with the concerns of older white working class voters. The Sanders campaign showed that it was able to, that it could reignite essentially New Deal hopes for uh, an economic bill, a bill of rights. Although I do not agree with Robert Kuttner and, and with Axelrod and others who are claiming now that the Clinton Wall Street wing of the party is dead. It will be resuscitated, I think, and resuscitated especially by, by Silicon Valley. But for the moment, at least, the Sanders forces have an enormous opportunity and window for truly transformational political change, uh, not Trump. Trump will soon be visited by the gods of chaos and uh, 
the most virulent form. Mike Davis. Mike, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you, John. Last week's election makes a lot of us feel like everything we thought we knew about politics was wrong. For example, Joan Walsh, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She spent the last weeks covering the campaign in North Carolina. We see a lot of her on MSNBC, where she's a political analyst. And she wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Well, we all thought Trump would succeed with working-class white men, but that their vote would be offset by the votes of uh, women horrified by Trump's misogyny and that additional votes from women would make Hillary the winner. We were wrong in predicting women's support for Hillary. The exit polls showed there was a big gender gap. Women supported Clinton over Trump 54% to 42%, but that's about the same as Obama got in 2012 and 2008. So Clinton did not attract a higher proportion of women than Obama did, even though she ran against this horrible sexual predator while Obama ran against Mitt Romney, this patriarchal uh, gentleman. We need to understand how this happened. Why did this happen? How do people explain it. How do you understand it? Well, I think that women were obviously not quite as charged up about the idea of electing the first uh, female president as, as many of us thought, which is, it hurts me to say, but I think it is true from some of the polling data I've seen. I think that also, you know, 30 years of uh, attacks by the right wing and that last uh, attack, I'm going to call it, by FBI Director James Comey, what we're seeing is that the people who decided in the last week broke overwhelmingly for Trump, and that included women as well. So, you know, women who may have been repelled by the uh, Access Hollywood video, uh, etc., were propelled back to Trump by that reinforcement of the, the notion that you just can't trust her. That was, that was a huge problem. Some of our friends uh, argue that Clinton failed to speak to the needs of working class women, especially white women. What they need is a uh, higher minimum wage, universal child care and pre-K, uh, paid family leave, free college, equal pay for women. What do you think about this critique? I kind of think it's specious because Hillary Clinton supported every one of those policies. I think in the end, though, it's fair to say that she did not trumpet her economic message for women or men enough in the closing days of the campaign. I think that they made a decision to close the campaign on the issue of unity and inclusion and diversity uh, and as well to uh, you know, give President Obama the credit he deserves, and, and especially in African-American communities, to promise to, you know, finish what he started, to continue, continue his agenda. And even that agenda, uh, as far as I saw in North Carolina, was not described in economic terms, though it could have been. Uh, it was really described in kind of racial solidarity terms. So, you know, with hindsight and with, with a week, uh, I'm able to see where some, you know, some of the people who've criticized her economic stands, they were all there. A really amazing economist, Heather Boucher, ran, was her chief 
economists for the transition, left-wing people who are paying very close attention to the campaign could tell you chapter or verse and verse of what she was going to do, what she had promised. But there weren't enough of us. And, and her campaign, I think, has to be blamed some for not making uh, that progressive economic platform, as well as all the things that, you know, some of our left-wing feminists say she didn't offer, but in fact she did. The fact that people didn't know that, that those were things she stood for, definitely a problem of the media, but somewhat a problem of hers. I want to go back to the, uh, the election statistics of the Obama years. The Obama coalition got the most votes ever in 2008, 69 million votes. Trump this year got 10 million votes less than that. The Obama coalition famously was non-white people, young people, and women, especially single uh, women. It seemed like the future of America. Now it seems like the next four years will be the opposite. Our current future will be ruled by angry white men. The Obama coalition failed when it came to electing Hillary. Does that coalition of non-white people, young people, and women have a future in American politics? Or, or was it something specific to 2008 and 2012, and, and now it's finished and something else is going to happen? Well, a couple things. He himself dropped by about three to four million in 2012. He w- he was at a, uh, 65 or 66 million when all the votes were counted, which they still aren't. Which t- you know, it takes it actually literally takes a couple months. Uh, she right now is at about 60. So she su- she suffered a, twice as big a dip as Obama suffered between 08 and 12. I'm getting too much in the weeds, and I apologize. But it, but it's important to say. You know, the, the, the 2008 election, I think, was shaped largely by the, the economic crash and John McCain's pathetic inability to reckon with, with it. And then when he did reckon with it, he panicked and he canceled his campaign. And he looked like a, you know, kind of angry, frightened, I hate to be ageist, but old man out of touch with what the, with what the world needed. And uh, I want to say there's a great piece. I think it's going to show up in the New York Times magazine, but you can still find it online um, by a writer named Nicole Hannah-Jones who goes back to her home. She's African-American, but she goes back to her home in Iowa to understand why this place that was so important to Obama, giving him the caucus win in 08, became a Trump state. And what she found, there really were a lot of Obama supporters in 08 and again in 2012 who were really actually kind of racist uh, and voted for him nonetheless out of economic desperation, dislike of Republicans. Um, And so when they were given a true hero, uh, a true uh, guy who said he was going to break up Washington, drain the swamp, promised to create jobs, but never, never knew how, and served them, a, served them a dollop of racism on the side, they went for that guy. And Hillary Clinton, I think, had no choice, chance. Um, the one worrisome thing I've seen, to be honest, lately, and I just haven't nailed this down enough, but, you know, when you put together that Obama coalition, I want to add one group that, that you were missing, and that was unmarried white women. Um, they, they, I believe they broke slightly for Obama in 12 uh, much better in in 08, but Stan Greenberg and all of the pollsters and analysts who put together this notion of the rising American electorate, we need those white, uh, not necessarily working class, but white non, non, un- unmarried women in the coalition. It looks like they broke 
for Trump, and I'm not sure by how much. That's very worrisome. But apart from that slight worry that I have, you know, there's a lot we have to do around messaging. I don't want to be complacent, but that the demographics are on our side. We still need to carve off some of the white working class, and the focus has been on those white unmarried working class women. We need to understand what happened to them before we go back to being optimistic. But I really don't want people – we can be in despair because it's horrible what's going to happen and white men are in charge. But in terms of you know who turned out and what the future coalition is, we don't have to correct it a whole lot. We just have to make sure we nominate somebody who – doesn't have as much baggage. I supported her wholeheartedly, but I think she never she never recovered from, you know, the perception that she was untrustworthy that she kind of went into the election with. Uh, and somebody who's really ready to be a strong pitch person. I hope we can nominate a woman again. I'm I'm afraid we're going to just say we need a big blustery white man on the stump. Uh, but whatever, a man or a woman who will fight hard. Uh, to get out our economic message and talk about how we're going to make things better for for workers of all races. Joan Walsh, read her at thenation.com. Joan, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about political anxiety, the United States of anxiety. That's the podcast produced and hosted by Kai Wright. He's the nation's features editor. The United States of Anxiety podcast has been about politics this season. It's co-produced by The Nation and WNYC. We reached Kai Wright at the offices of The Nation magazine in New York City today. Hey, Kai, welcome back. Thanks. Glad to be here, John. So every week for the for the last two months, you and your team have been going out, especially to Long Island, which is Trump country, talking to people there about how they saw the election and, and the world. And your prototypical Trump supporter uh, has been a cheerful, talkative, white working woman named, named Patty Dwyer. What, what did you conclude were the emotional realities, uh, the anxieties underneath Patty's support for Trump? Uh, you know, I think it's probably what was most striking to me for her uh, was something that one of the uh, uh, political scientists we had on towards the end of the series said is that, uh, you know, as pushing him to understand, you know, what, what about these people? Okay, fine. We say we know there's a- economic anxieties. We know um, that there's uh, this uh, opiate uh, epidemic raging. We, you know, we know that there are problems in some of these white working class communities that are quite profound, you know, but how do we explain the fact that there are so many of his supporters who are not facing those problems that are doing well? And that's Patty. She's doing, you know, she's doing relatively well. She's had a hard times like all of us, um, uh, but she's doing relatively well. And, and he pointed out something that I think did uh, stick with me is that, you know, it, what we saw in the vote was communities voting, not individuals voting. Yeah. Um, uh, and that if you are much, frankly, like I, I can relate to it as, as an African-American, much like a black person, I, you know, I'm middle class, I'm, I'm quite privileged. Uh, you know, I have a, a lot of opportunity in life, um, but I know several ma- family members who um, have spent uh, good portions of their life in prison. Um, Great many of my family members have died uh, early of poverty diseases. Um, you know, I I have family members who are struggling with uh, uh, with 
working in jobs that that where the minimum wage uh, is not, in fact, a living wage. And so though those things don't impact my life, they're part of my community and, uh, and they form and shape my politics. And so similarly, uh, I think we have to understand these communities as a whole um, in places where Patty knows, you know, she can spit and hit somebody, a family that uh, has, some, has lost somebody to opiate addiction and she uh, can spit and hit a family where uh, somebody was once uh, working in, at Grumman in, in a, you know, a nice manufacturing job and is, and is now stock, stocking shelves at Walmart and feeling humiliated. Um, so, uh, so, it's, so I think for her, what, that's what stood out for me is that, is, is that we have to think about communities as a whole, not just individuals. Well, we've listened to clips from some of your interviews with Patty over the last few weeks here, and I, I realized the day after the election, that that miserable day, I realized you and your team would be going back to Long Island to talk to Patty because you guys are professionals. But I, I have to say that you, it was your colleague Arun Venegopal who talked yeah. to her. I didn't think he got a whole lot out of Patty after Trump's victory. She said she was happy. She said the people who feared that Trump was a racist were wrong, that they had been misinformed and misled by the mainstream media, and that everything would be pretty much okay for people of color under President Trump. Is that a fair summary of Patty's position today? Yeah, it is, and it's deeply unsatisfying. Um, uh, I will agree. Uh, you know, we we uh, we had hoped that uh, she and, and others that we had spoken to would have uh, would say something more reflective, would have a more uh, self awareness of of the anxiety that uh, others were feeling as a consequence. But that is just not the case. And you know, I have to say, I mean, this is one of the problems with white supremacy. You know, and one of the problems with uh, people who live in a narrative that centers whiteness is that it's very difficult to see beyond the bounds of it. Um, and um, you know, and one of our challenges, and I, and I think that's what, exactly what you heard in Batty's remarks. Um, and one of our political challenges moving forward, um, and this is why we played so much when we played a lot of Barack Obama in that in that episode, and we can talk about that. But part yeah. of the reason why we did that is that I think one of the questions we face is, you know, how to deal with the fact that a good hunk of the country is, you know, is, is white supremacist. And when I say that, you know, people hear brown shirts and, uh, and, and KKK, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a world in which you have centered whiteness as the norm, economically, socially, and culturally, and you're only comfortable when that is the case and when, that, when it becomes decentered as it has, uh, in the past decade, that um, it becomes alarming, and they have trouble with it, and we have to figure out how. We well, well, one one potential solution is that we have to figure out how to get more people like Patty to 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 think beyond their white experience. Well, I want to listen uh, to that Obama speech that you you pulled out of the archives. It's it's from the 2008 campaign before Obama was elected, set the stage here for what this speech was about and what the occasion was. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's widely considered one of the most notable uh, speeches, presidential speeches, or, well, speeches in, in, uh, in, in, our, in American political history. You know, this was what happened following, uh, he had, Obama had spent most of the campaign avoiding a direct conversation about race, and uh, the controversy ensued over his pastor, Reverend Jeremiah Wright's. Uh, the audio was leaked of uh, of some of his sermons um, in which he uh, 
spoke like uh, a, a a person with radical black politics, <laughs> um, and and that was very easily caricatured, and um, and it scared a lot of people, and uh, and so uh, Obama gave this speech in uh, in Philadelphia in in response to it. So let's listen just to a little clip of Obama from the 2008 campaign before he became president. The the background music here is courtesy of WNYC. And just as black anger often proved counterproductive, so have these white resentments distracted attention from the real culprits of the middle class squeeze. A corporate culture rife with inside dealing, questionable accounting practices, and short-term greed. A Washington dominated by lobbyists and special interests. Economic policies that favor the few over the many. And yet to wish away the resentments of white Americans, to label them as misguided or even racist, without recognizing they are grounded in legitimate concerns, this too widens the racial divide and blocks the path to understanding. This is where we are right now. It's a racial stalemate we've been stuck in for years. Contrary to the claims of some of my critics, black and white, I have never been so naive as to believe that we can get beyond our racial divisions in a single election cycle or with a single candidate, particularly a candidacy as imperfect as my own. But I have asserted a firm conviction, a conviction rooted in my faith in God and my faith in the American people, that working together, we can move beyond some of our old racial wounds and that in fact we have no choice. We have no choice if we are to continue on the path of a more perfect union. So Obama campaigning in 2008. Kai, it's an, it's an amazing thing to listen to now. It kind of gives me the chills. What, right. what, do you, what has happened to America since Obama gave that speech in 2008? Well, I think exactly what he describes. <laughs> you know, um, uh, it is quite prescient. I mean, and throughout that speech, and, and I should say I have been critical of that speech um, uh, for its uh, some of uh, the Obama-isms he does with race in terms of false equivalencies uh, between the reactions of people of color and, and white people um, to the worlds we face. But that said, uh, he quite presciently describes uh, the situation we're in today. He was calling it today in 2008, but it certainly is 2016. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and I think, you know, and, and we included it for that reason. And I think two things, one is, you know, I, I think many progressives would agree with the, with, with the most straightforward part of that analysis, which is that, you know, as long as we have uh, a set of neoliberal policies are now in this case, conservative policies that, that perpetuate the kind of uh, economy that we've lived through, then we're going to have this problem. Um, and, and no campaign is going to, there's no campaign strategy that's going to change that. And, you know, yes, we had, you know, Hillary Clinton was an imperfect uh, candidate in many ways, but the, no campaign is going to get over the fact that, uh, of the economy that we've created and that Obama went on to create. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, uh, he continued uh, in his, it, it, the, the democratic tradition, uh, tradition of this neoliberal governance um, despite having told us so eloquently uh, of its dangers. Um, so I think that is uh, something that stands out. But then also uh, where I'm wrestling now with is, you know, 
uh, having said that I was critical of the way he often created these false equivalencies uh, on race, uh, I also must acknowledge the fact that he he succeeded in uh, in convincing a meaningful number of white people, and particularly working class white people, that they had a place in a, a, in a new America in which whiteness wasn't centered. He he, he succeeded in that, um, and um, and 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 I didn't feel like that that was the most important task before us. But now I'm not so sure. Um, uh, or at least that it's not a, an important task, having seen uh, the fact that uh, their power remains um, and that uh, uh, and the failure to um, the failure to convince some share of you know a growing share of them uh, that they're part of the future of the country means uh, peril for the for our lives and and so. I, I'm I'm personally wrestling with that uh, and reevaluating what I think about that. I don't know where I land, but but it's certain that uh, Barack Obama had landed on an ability to paint a picture of the future uh, in which these folks saw themselves included, and 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 I think there's there's got to be something learned from that. First and foremost, being don't govern in the neoliberal way that he followed. <laughs> It's a great note to end on. You can listen to the United States of Anxiety podcast at thenation.com. Kai Wright is host and producer. Kai, it's been great talking to you. Thanks very much. You as well. Thanks so much, John. For more, we turn now to Adam Schatz. He's the former literary editor of The Nation. Now he's a contributing editor at the London Review of Books. He writes for the New York Review and the New York Times Magazine. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Thank you very much, John. You talk about uh, what you call the profoundly nostalgic dimensions of Trump's appeal. What, what exactly is the nostalgia about? I think the nostalgia is for an America that uh, never really existed for a kind of, well, for an America where uh, white people were the natural leaders, where black people and people of color sort of uh, knew their place, um, where hierarchies were stable, where, you know, kind of uh, idealized uh, uh, Cleaver family uh, vision of the United States that they felt uh, had been uh, had been lost. And I think having uh, this uh, man in the White House who was not only black but had a Muslim name and who had been uh, raised in Indonesia was, um, was unsettling to them. Uh, mind you, I'm not talking about all Americans. I'm just saying a significant portion of, of white Americans who showed up and voted. And when you talk about their uh, affection for the Cleaver family, you're not talking about Eldridge Cleaver. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. Only you would have thought of that. <laughs> well, he did run for president. Right. Of course, of course. But they're the but they're the precisely the kind of people who would have assimilated Barack Obama to Eldridge Cleaver, yes. even though Barack Obama's politics are basically the antithesis of Eldridge Cleaver's. Well, Eldridge Cleaver was a presidential candidate, I believe, on the Peace and Freedom ticket in what nineteen sixty eight, at least in California. <laughs> Indeed, he was. He had similar aspirations to Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> well, Trump talked a lot during the campaign about law and order. This is a phrase that some of us old timers remember from the Nixon years. It was, you know, code for black people rioting in the streets. It was a reference to 
you know, Watts, Detroit, Newark, and what needed to be done, restore law and order. We don't have mass uprisings like there were in Watts in 65 and Detroit and Newark in, in 68. Well, well we, don't, we don't have mass uprisings, that's true. But what, what we've seen has been uh, a spate of killings of, uh, of unarmed black people by the police in, at best, highly questionable circumstances. And these killings have been captured um, on video, often on cell phones. And uh, in the aftermath of these killings, uh, questions have been raised not only by the families, but by the Black Lives Matter movement. And in response to the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been another um, movement which has taken on the title uh, Police Lives Matter. Yeah. And these are people, um, and of course Rudy Giuliani is very much associated with them, who um, are uh, become very angry when any questions are raised about police behavior. In their view, the police are to be trusted, that it is a sign of the breakdown of law and order when questions are raised about uh, police behavior. They, they think that uh, racism is no longer a problem in this country. In their view, this, the very fact that there could have been a black man in the office is an indication that America has no unfinished business. In fact, someone um, in, Trump's camp, in Trump's campaign said that racism had begun with the presidency of Barack Obama. Now, uh, during the Nixon era, uh, this was this uh, manipulation of white fear was called the Southern strategy. But today we see that, th- that these um, anxieties about uh, black power are much more diffuse. It's, it's not just the South. And, uh, and, and, and you know, uh, Donald Trump is very much a New Yorker, so is Rudy Giuliani, and their ideas about law enforcement go back to a very dark era of New York City politics in the 1980s and 90s, the years of Ed Koch and, um, and, and Rudy Giuliani, when Donald, Tr- Donald Trump, as you'll remember, was uh, one of the leading forces behind the attack uh, in the Central Park Jogger case. Of course, he turned out to be completely wrong. The people who were thrown into jail for raping the Central Park Jogger were, in fact, innocent and were eventually cleared after suffering years in prison. And yet Donald Trump still claims these poor men were guilty. Even though they were exonerated on the basis of DNA evidence. Well, uh, uh, John, DNA evidence. Come on, we're talking about faith-based politics here. Reality does not, reality does not count for Donald Trump. We're talking about a birther, a birther right. We're talking about someone who will make a statement, forget it promptly afterwards, say the opposite, and won't register the fact that he's contradicted himself. He, he does not live in a world where statements are checked. So in your... Uh piece, The Nightmare Begins, for the uh, London Review of Books, you conclude from this analysis of the sort of economic and political landscape of America over the last couple of years that Hillary Clinton never should have been the Democratic candidate. What's your argument here? Uh, my argument is that uh, Hillary, I mean, Hillary Clinton had far too many liabilities, whether it came to her support for uh, adventurous foreign policies that most Americans reject. Um, she was also hated uh, by many Americans, uh, rightly or wrongly. In many cases, it was a matter uh, of misogyny. Uh, she was associated with uh, neoliberal policies of globalization and free trade, support for NAFTA and so on, which had uh, caused or, or at least perceived to have caused suffering um, in the heartland. And even when she shifted gears, uh, thanks to uh, uh, Bernie uh, Sanders' challenge, it never felt uh, very sincere. Similarly, uh, when it came to uh, black Americans, uh, Hillary, it was Hillary Clinton who had spoken of super predators, who had been very supportive 
of the crime bill that had had that had exacerbated the mass incarceration crisis. And during the campaign, of course, she tilted towards Black Lives Matter. But again, um, not many people uh, were were persuaded. So uh, there was also a sense, I think, that that Hillary Clinton felt entitled, that she felt that uh, that it was her turn, as it were. And I think that that sense of entitlement that she exuded uh, alienated uh, a lot of Americans and that she really could never be a very credible candidate. So are you suggesting that a 74-year-old Jewish socialist from Vermont could have defeated uh, Trump? Uh, I'm not suggesting that because I think that uh, Bernie Sanders, while Bernie Sanders could appeal to a certain portion of the uh, white working class electorate, I don't think he could have succeeded against a candidate uh, who was combining an appeal to class rage with a kind of toxic uh, uh, resentment of, of, of foreigners and, uh, and, and, uh, and people of color. I think that that, that combination uh, was ultimately, would ultimately have been much more effective. I also think that um, in spite of the end of the Cold War, uh, being a socialist, being publicly identified as a socialist in America, not to mention as a Jewish socialist, would have been uh, a profound uh, uh, liability uh, for, 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 for Bernie Sanders. What's more, I don't think that the anti-system rage of many of Trump's supporters, and let's remember, a lot of his supporters were not working class. They were not poor. They were doing better than most Americans, according to a lot of the surveys. I think for most of them, this rage, their, their, their rage did not mean they wanted to dismantle the system and replace it with a more egalitarian socialistic system. It meant they wanted to, to transform it in such a way that it would work for them. In other words, what they liked about Trump was that he talked like them. He talked like a loser. He was inarticulate. He was, he was blunt. Um, he lacked the social graces of his opponent. Um, he had no taste for etiquette, but at the same time, he was clearly a winner in that classic American sense. Despite the fact that he started out with a million dollars that his father had given him, he somehow was able to pass, him off, pass himself off as a Horatio Alger guy who had made himself from the bottom up, whereas, whereas Bernie Sanders was just a kind of working-class socialist from New York. I just don't think it would have been, a, it would have been as effective. Last question that Donald Trump is not going to bring back industrial jobs to Ohio and Pennsylvania and Michigan. What is going to happen to the Trump supporters when he uh, fails to fulfill that fundamental promise he made? I, I think that's going to depend on the kind of opposition that gets mobilized by people on the left who are uh, who are against Trump. And I think it depends on whether uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and people in his camp are able to create a viable movement with, uh, with compelling leadership, uh, who can convince these people that, uh, they have an interest in joining forces with, uh, working class people who are people of color. I mean, one, one thing we tend to forget, um, and unfortunately it's an impression that has been reproduced by a lot of, uh, liberal journalists that many working class people in this country are not white. The demographics of this country are changing. And the only chance, I think, of a, of a successful opposition to Trump lies in solidarity across racial lines. Adam Schatz, he was literary editor of The Nation. His piece, The Nightmare Begins, appears in the London Review. Adam, it's been great talking with you. Thanks so much. Thank you, John.
This is our first anniversary show. We've now done 52 weeks of this podcast. Soon after we started, the nation endorsed Bernie. Now those 52 weeks have ended really badly. And we head into what seems like one of the darkest times in our history. But we have lots of smart people with ideas about how to understand this new America and lots of proposals about what to do now. In our second year, we'll be working every week to start making sense of our new situation. So thanks to all our listeners, all our guests, and everybody at The Nation who's helped with our first year. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.